0: Back to Matthew chapter 26, we turn this morning, we pick up where we left off last time at verse 30. Uh, This is at page 832 in your pew Bible, if that is uh, helpful for you. As you turn, may I remind you that we find ourselves at this point in Matthew's gospel entering the last hours of Jesus before the cross. Last time we were with Jesus and the disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem where Jesus on the occasion of the celebration of Passover instituted the Lord's Supper, gave them in sign and seal his body and blood, informing them that the pouring out of his blood was for the forgiveness of sins. Next, we find them on the Mount of Olives, outside the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus gives a disturbing prophecy that we'll read together in a moment, and to which Peter, in true Peter fashion, vehemently objects. And we will uh, keep our eyes on Peter, as a matter of fact, this morning, jumping ahead in the text, but um, before I jump ahead of myself, let's pray. Father, we ask for your help, your blessing, and especially for your spirit, to visit us, to open our hearts to receive your word in the innermost places, to be transformed, molded, and shaped by your truth in our thinking, in our motives, in our affections, that all of our lives may follow, just as our Savior said they would and must, for out of the overflow of our heart, our mouths speak and we live So work there, we pray, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But... After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. You know what happens next? They move to a place called Gethsemane where where Jesus asks his disciples, specifically Peter and the sons of Zebedee, to watch and pray. And he goes off a little further to pray himself. You know what happens, they fall asleep. Jesus is agonizing in prayer over what is about to happen, and they doze off. This happens three times. Jesus comes and wakes them. Then Judas shows up to betray Jesus. Jesus wakes up the disciples again. And those Judas led to the place, seized Jesus and lead him to Caiaphas, the high priest, to be questioned and tried by night. The kangaroo court finds him guilty—no surprise there—and begins spitting on him, and striking him, and taunting him. And that's where we pick up at verse 69. Verse 69, outside of Caiaphas's house. Verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered The saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Recently we were struck to the heart by the apostasy, the turning of Judas against Jesus, greedily betraying his master for 30 lousy pieces of silver. But now, Peter... Peter. Here Peter is virtually indistinguishable from Judas, at least for these moments spent in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas's house, within eyeshot of Jesus, who is now under arrest and being interrogated. Peter, the believer, is acting just like an unbeliever. But then You and I know a few things, don't we? We know a thing or two about acting just like an unbeliever. We know about believers acting like unbelievers, don't we? We know it all too personally, all too well. We, of all people, are and must be ready for the lessons this passage has to teach us. Sometime back, one of my Baptist pastor friends who is now in glory mentioned in his daily email devotional how thankful he is that the Bible is not just full of porcelain saints. In fact, there are no porcelain saints in the Bible, are there? Only real, genuine saints with cracks and faults and feet of clay. The way he put it was that we get the saints warts, and all. Well, this is a pretty big war, isn't it? Uh, it's a huge one, isn't it? Right on the tip of Peter's nose. It couldn't have been but a matter of hours, even less, since Peter had declared with all of the confidence of his heart even if I must die with you, I will not deny you even less since he had witnessed Jesus restore the ear to Malchus that Peter himself had handily removed from the man's head with his sword. And now Peter the lion-hearted cowers before a servant girl. Looking in at him through squinted eyes by the firelight, she says, this girl, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. I don't know what you mean, he says. A little later in response to another servant girl who associates him with Jesus, he denies with an oath, even knowing the man. won't even use his name. And then in response to another bystander, one who recognizes Peter's accent as betraying, Isn't that an interesting choice of words there? His accent as betraying his Galilean background, Peter denies with a curse and oath, I do not know the man! Who didn't know the man by then? This is a major warts. But we are slow to point proud fingers at Peter. Or at least we should be, because we have our own warts. As a matter of fact, in many ways, you and I have denied Christ too, haven't we? We've denied Him by acting at times in ways designed to cloak our identity as Christians, in ways intended to keep people from linking us with the Lord. Maybe we were a little bit, a little bit embarrassed at that moment to be thought Christians, concern that being identified with Christ you know would be to our disadvantage in one way or another or even bring ridicule on us in the eyes of people whose opinions we alas consider at those times when we are at our weakest to be more important than God's approval of course we deny Jesus in one way Or another every day of our life. You know, every time we treat one sin or another as more important, more desirable, more enjoyable than Jesus, we deny him again and again and again. Every time we neglect him, neglect to spend time with him, neglect his word, neglect prayer. To do what? You know, catch a television show and I'll just straighten out the lampshades <laughs> The chase after more work. Whatever it is, we deny Him again. Every temptation yielded to is another way that we turn our backs on Jesus and act as if we don't even know the man. What we have here in Peter in the courtyard of Caiaphas's house, my dear brothers and sisters, is us. And what we have in His life is simply the brutal realities of the Christian life, the life to which you and I are called as followers of Christ, and the lessons of Peter's life, therefore, are the lessons for us as well. Consider with me one of those lessons, the first one we draw today, that our salvation is by grace, only by grace, and totally by grace. That's the great lesson taught to us in the Bible, isn't it? In all manner of ways, often in direct speech, teaching such as Paul's, it is by grace that you are saved, and perhaps even more often by example. It's a truth woven right into the warp and weft of redemptive history, the history of God's saving His people, that is saving them for himself that history of redemption of salvation as you know consists of covenants covenants that god has made with us you remember some of them the covenant god made with adam the covenant he made with noah the covenant he made with abraham with moses with david this is the way god interacts with us isn't it the way he saves us through covenant but you have you ever noticed this pattern of the covenants. Every time God comes and establishes, renews His covenant, that renewal is almost immediately followed by dismal failure. Not by God, but by us. Remember, God makes a covenant with Adam. What does Adam do? He turns, he disobeys God, he eats the forbidden fruit, Plunges all mankind into the pit of sin and rebellion against God. God covenants with Noah. Having saved just Noah and his family. And where do we find Noah next? In a drunken stupor, naked. God covenants with Abraham to be God to him and to his offspring. With the most sweeping, worldwide, history-deep promise to bless through him a multitude more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sands of the seashore. But Abraham, despite God's plain promises to bless him out of fear for his own life, lies, calls Sarah his sister, and nearly loses her as a result to Pharaoh. And then he does it again. Or remember the circumstances of God's covenant with Moses. Even as God was meeting with Moses on Sinai, covenanting with the people, they're making a golden calf, offering idolatrous worship mixed with perversion. Alas, King David is no exception. When God promises that the throne would never fail to be filled with one of his descendants, David turns and enters into adultery And then commits murder to try to cover that up. Now Jesus renews his covenant with his disciples in the upper room. My body given for you. My blood shed for you. That's what the Lord's Supper is, isn't it? What it's been from the beginning. A sign and seal of another renewal of his covenant with Us in Christ. But hardly has the taste of that bread and wine departed from his tongue, but Peter is using that tongue to deny that he even knows the man, Jesus. What is all of this? But the grand demonstration of the fact that salvation is, salvation must be, cannot be anything other than By grace, by grace, by grace, by grace. While we are often proving ourselves unfaithful, God is proving himself faithful, exercising unbroken faithfulness to us. Our salvation is not. How could it be in the least based on our faithfulness? It's all of grace. Let this sink into your hearts. It is all of grace. It is all about the unmerited favor that the Almighty has shown to you and to me who can hardly even converse with God in prayer but that we are sinning and proving ourselves unfaithful again, denying Him like Peter did somehow and in some way. This morning we'll gather around the supper again, around the Lord's table, and and then we'll leave this place, won't we? We'll leave this renewal of the covenant, and what will we do? It breaks our hearts. We will sin. We'll sin and we'll deny the Lord some more hate that dismal fact. Like Peter, we weep over our sin. How our hearts break over our sin. Aren't you sick of sin? Aren't you sick of sinning? We're not only sin sick, we're sick of sinning, aren't we? But God will continue to be faithful to us The promises he renews to us are sure and certain altogether, even renewed to us this morning, to inveterate sinners like you and me. That's the great comparison that lines face up in this very passage, isn't it? While Peter's in the courtyard being faithless, Jesus, just feet away from him, is in the house of Caiaphas being faithful. That's the picture. Both are facing trials, aren't they? As one commentator points out, Peter is facing a trial of discipleship and Jesus a trial of messiahship. And while Peter is distancing himself from Christ, Christ is drawing himself closer and closer to the cross. While Peter's out here heaping up his sin, Jesus is taking on that sin. No, he's becoming sin for us. What sinners could not Do, the sinless one did. He reconciled us to God. Our salvation is all of grace from beginning to end and at every point in between. It's all of God's grace. His plan, His accomplishment, His sacrifice, His payment, His death, His resurrection. All His. All His doing. Not what my hands have done, we sing, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can make my spirit whole. That's the first point. We are saved utterly and completely by grace, by grace alone. The history of redemption itself and of God's covenant is the perfect demonstration of this fact. But having said that, the second point might seem almost jarring to you. Almost out of place, maybe. Almost contradictory to the first, but here goes. Peter's failure at this point is a great summons. A great summons for us to work and to work very hard at living the Christian life. This life of faith, faithfully. Peter's failure in Caiaphas' courtyard can be traced Directly back across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. I alluded to it a few minutes ago. Watch and pray, Jesus said. You remember? Watch and pray that what? That you may not enter into temptation. Exactly. And what did Peter do? He fell asleep. He fell asleep. He didn't watch and pray. And so when temptation came, he not only fell into it, he plunged into it head first, didn't he? Full speed. He had been given something to do, just as you and I have been given work to do and works to do. There is a life to which you and I have been summoned as Christians, a life for which our Savior has secured us, has bought us us at the price of His own blood. We may be saved by grace. Yes, wonderfully we are. We are saved by grace, but as Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, we are not saved by cheap grace. Cheap grace, grace so-called that does not require our very lives in return, is not grace at all, is it? Grace calls us to works. Grace calls us, as Paul writes, to be zealous for good works. And we children of the Reformation, we, we sometimes forget just how important is this matter of works, don't we? Of a life of obedience, of vigilance. We forget that the Bible even goes so far as to teach us that we will be judged at the great judgment day according to our works. That we will be rewarded by Jesus in proportion to our works, that without the fruit of works in our lives, we will not, we cannot enter heaven. Hasn't Matthew Bennett pains to convey that in his gospel, this te- the teaching of Jesus to us, even just very recently? Scripture nowhere teaches that on the judgment day, Jesus will ask for a show of hands, you know, how many of you believed in me in this life and therefore are saved? We're saved by grace, to be sure through faith. But while we're saved by grace, it is a fundamental truth of God's Word that we will be judged by works. Rather than asking, did you believe in me? Jesus will say on that day, what did you do? What did you do for me? Did you visit me in prison? Did you feed me when I was hungry? Did you give me drink when I was thirsty? In other words, did you serve me? Did you love me by loving your brothers and sisters in my name? Did you stand and confess me when testing came? Then enter your rest. The great measure of our lives, indeed, of Peter's life will not be so much whether he believed, but how he lived that's the standard. I say we reformed people in you know, rock ribbed Presbyterians who can recite the solas in our sleep, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, by faith alone, solus Christus in Christ alone, and so on, can easily overlook the Bible's constant summons to a life of works, of striving, of watching, of praying, of wrestling with temptation, of fighting the good fight fighting against sin, putting on new obedience. We fear, I think, that too much attention to those biblical emphases, the judgment according to works, for example, threatens somehow to undo salvation by grace. I was reminded of this fact at a meeting of our presbytery uh, many years ago in which we examined a candidate for one of the pulpits in our churches. And as one might well expect, he was an expert and could wring the changes on salvation by grace. But then one of the pastors asked him in the course of the examination, but how are we judged? By God's grace, he replied. <laughs> no, what I mean is, on what basis will we be judged on the judgment day? Oh, the righteousness of Christ, he answered. What about works? The questioner continued. All of our evil works will be forgiven, covered by the righteousness of Christ. Yes, but what about our good works? What does the Bible say about them? Well, the Bible says that our good works, the best of our good works are but filthy rags. Well, true enough. He was right. On those points, but finally, someone else tried to help this candidate by offering him a sort of verbal <laughs> fill-in the blank from First Corinthians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has. Done in the body, (laughs) whether good or evil. Our dear candidate knew salvation by grace, and rightly so. He knew it like the back of his hand, like any worthy candidate for a Presbyterian pastor it should. But somehow it trumped, in his personal theology, the Bible's teaching that good works are absolutely essential, necessary. For a genuine Christian life, indeed for passing successfully into glory through the judgment which shall be according to works, we must have that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I tell you that story because it illustrates how our thinking must be conformed to, and more and more, to the truth of Scripture from pulpit to pew. Peter had a work to do. He had his marching orders. So do we. Watch and pray. Failing that, he failed the test when temptation came. We all have a life to live as the redeemed children of God. Sovereign grace does in no wise trump human responsibility. On the contrary, it establishes it. Having been bought by, saved by God's grace, now you have a work to do. You have a war to wage. You have a fight, a good fight to fight, a race to run, an enemy to conquer. Happily, I can report to you that Peter did all of that. He did just that, and all of it. He, he lost this particular battle, that's true, but he did not lose the war. His failure at this point and the bitter tears of repentance, of turning back to God, were just exactly that, a point of repentance, of turning back to God. He turned from his cowardice to become a bold Proclaimer and faithful ambassador of Christ. Par excellence. The Prince of Apostles. That's the name by which we know him now. Was Peter finished with failures that day? With struggles in the Christian life? Now think. You know the answer. We know from Paul's account of Peter's cowardice. On another occasion, too, don't we? In Antioch. But to the best of our knowledge, from Holy Scripture and even from Christian tradition, Peter lived a fruitful and faithful Christian life. A life filled with good works for the kingdom of God that culminated in his own death by crucifixion. Maybe you've heard the story, the, the ancient tradition known as the Quo Watis story. Basically, it says that while the fires of persecution were being stoked in Rome, the church there was urging upon the apostle the importance of his leadership, and they wanted him to flee for his life to be spared for the sake of the gospel. Peter protested his willingness to suffer for, the, uh, for Christ's sake, even unto death, but finally they prevailed upon him, and, and he made his escape from Rome. And as the story goes, he was leaving the city. And as he was leaving the city, encountered the Lord Jesus himself entering it and asked the Lord, Domine Quo Vadis, Lord, where are you going? Peter asks. To Rome, he replies, to be crucified again. Peter immediately realized his mistake. Into the night vision ebbed like breath, and Peter turned and rushed on Rome and death. Tradition has it that Peter asked to be crucified upside down as unworthy to die in the same way as his Lord and Savior. Now, whether that story of the encounter on the road is true or not, we can be sure that Peter's life ended that way that is with a mixture of sin and failure and with fruitful service and faithful ministry and honor paid to Jesus Christ in other words he lived to the last a truly genuine Christian life now for his sins and his failures Peter took the blame to himself, and you and I must do the same for ours. We have no one else to blame when we deny the Lord in whatever way we do it, except for ourselves. But for fruitful and faithful service and ministry, you may rest assured that Peter gave all glory to Jesus Christ, for that is where it belongs. You may be familiar with the words Jesus said Earlier to Peter, they're recorded in another gospel, in in Luke's gospel, when he warned Peter about what was going to happen. This is what Jesus said to Peter Satan had demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But to that warning, Jesus added this assurance But I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. Ultimately, it didn't, did it? Dear flock, the life that Jesus requires from you, that he demands from you and from me, of good works, of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him, of confessing him boldly before men, is not a life that you can live by your own strength. Even the life of faith and obedience to which he calls you by his grace must be lived same way by his grace, by his strength made perfect in your weakness, which is precisely what it is. Jesus has not only prayed for Peter, has he? Do you know this? Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for you too. He intercedes with the Father on your behalf now. And then he and the Father send the Spirit to you to strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. That your faith, though frail and often frayed, may not.